Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Hiawatha Church. Glad to have you guys here. My name's Chris. Uh, if you're visiting, welcome. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, thanks, band, again for, for that. I mentioned actually for first service, too, when Peter said that I was 18 years old. I listened to that song when I was a freshman in college at the U of M 18 years ago, but it reminded me that, um, that my, my birthday was in January this year. I turned 36, so I had this moment where I realized I've had 18 years of life since being a freshman and then I had 18 years of life, you know, two 18s. It was kind of a weird moment where I realized I had that 0 to 18 life, and now I've done another one of those since college. It was just weird. It made me feel super old. But um, I'm sure it gets, yeah, worse than that. But um, <laughs> that's <laughs> just this moment. Turning 36 was kind of a weird big deal, but two 18s. Anyway, uh, <laughs> well, uh, welcome again to Hiawatha, you guys. We are in the middle of a series right now on the book of Matthew. So I'll catch you guys up speed a little bit here. I uh, can't go into too much depth or we'll uh, preach a whole other sermon on summary, but um, a little bit on where we are in this book. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. We're in chapter 19, 1 to 12 today. We're going to look at this issue of divorce here in a minute. Uh, it comes up. Uh, some individuals ask Jesus about a particular slant in an Old Testament law about divorce certificates, and then it explodes into uh, something else, which is uh, really great, so we'll talk about that. Uh, but something does occur today that... Uh, <laughs> Is, is rather significant that's easy to miss because the passage isn't really about it. It's one of those little passing narrative insertions that uh, the gospel writers sometimes write into the story that are very deep and profound and theologically significant that are super easy to miss because as it is today, it's not the main point of the passage. It's just this passing narrative comment about geography. Uh, but the issue is that Jesus enters Judea. So a little bit of geography lesson here in the first century. There are different Roman provinces of the day. Rome had annexed uh, Israel and the surrounding lands, Asia Minor and so forth, uh, at this point in history, and it divided the land into provinces that were ruled by client kings, uh, mostly client kings, uh, sometimes uh, Roman governors themselves. But in any case, there's a Judean province in which was Jerusalem, but Jesus has spent his whole life up to this point in Galilee and basically all of his ministry. And so the fact that he is entering Judea now, going south, means he's headed towards Jerusalem, which is deeply, not just geographically significant, but theologically significant, and that he's going to Jerusalem. We know this because of what Matthew says. He's going there not just because he's bored and wants to see the big city or something. He's going there to die. He's going there to die on a cross, ultimately be accused as a blasphemer, as a sinner, even though he's not. He's perfect. He's the God-man. And he, and he wants to go there to ultimately orchestrate this whole uh, procession unto death. And we're going to read about that not until this fall, but it's this little glimpse as we approach Easter uh, this year. Um, in a couple of weeks, not going to get there as you understand that the, the preaching calendar won't get us to the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus in two weeks here. It's going to be this fall. But today, as we approach Easter this year, it's a small glimpse of the fact that Jesus is resolved to go and die for the sins of the world, perfect but deemed a criminal and a blasphemer by the Jews, but through which he orchestrates this wonderful salvation for us to purchase our forgiveness and earn us back uh, from, from sin and death. So even just something like that can be very worshipful as you guys read your Bible and see Jesus entered Judea on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, let that scream to you the resolve of a Savior, that he is headed there uh, not just to walk around the city but to die on a cross for our sins. So that's some, a little bit of geographical and theological context to where we are in the story. Uh, learning a lot about Christ's teachings, his demonstrations of the gospel of salvation through healings and so forth, uh, as he talks about the Old Testament as well, how he fulfills it. That'll play into today here uh, as, uh, as well. But on his way to Judea and enters the Judean province, he runs into more Pharisees, more religious rulers. This sets the context for today, who remember are seeking to destroy him. So this is another little whisper of Good Friday and Easter. It's coming. Uh, the, these religious rulers are offended by him. They believe he's a blasphemer. Uh, they're offended by a number of things that he does and says, how he interprets the Old Testament, how he actually rebukes them for different things. And so it says back in chapter 12, seven chapters ago, that after he talks to them about the Sabbath in a certain way, they're offended. And after that, it says, at the very bottom of that chapter, they set out from that point on to destroy him. So we know at this point when he's interacting with Pharisees that these are people that do not want his... Uh, you know, aren't intending his, you know, his betterment or his health or just have, have genuine questions, but they question him, as it says here, to test him, to trap him in his words that they might have something to accuse him on and ultimately destroy him with. And today the issue is about divorce. Uh, some particular part of the Old Testament that was debated in the first century by different Jewish theological schools 
and something they tried to trap him in with his words, and they don't end up doing it. Jesus does not take the bait. He never does. But he still uh, offers back this good, deep theological teaching on marriage and divorce and uh, surrounding issues. So let's read it. Uh, Matthew 19, 1 to 12 is the passage. Verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let, no, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. All right, so a little disclaimer on where we're headed today. Uh, this Just understand this will not be... Uh, a robust topical sermon on divorce and especially remarriage. We usually talk about those two things in tandem because some of the times in the Bible they do come up in tandem. But we're going to talk a little bit more about divorce textually through the lens of Matthew 19. So in other words, there'll probably be some questions you have or maybe some questions you have about divorce or remarriage, related things that just don't come up today. And that's okay. Uh, a lot of times you just can't have time to talk about all of it. But in today's passage, there's one particular slant on using uh, Genesis 1 and 2, and we'll talk about other parts of the New Testament that inform marriage, what it's all about, how the gospel relates to it, and then try to address different places you guys might be as well. Some of you are single, not yet married, but will be someday. Some of you are divorcees. Some of you have been hurt by divorce, your parents or uh, friends or others. Um, if it's not you know, first-hand experience, you've still been uh, hurt by it. Some of you have troubled marriages currently. And then the scriptures encourage us all broadly to hold up marriage in high regard. We'll talk about what that means. Every Christian should value marriage, whether they're married or not, very, very, very highly. And so we'll talk about uh, why that is, the nuances surrounding that, theological nuances, and also just the big question we should always ask about the Bible, any topic and theme, where does the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that accomplishes our forgiveness, how does that relate to to this particular theme, which is uh, inferred a lot? in Matthew 19 and surrounding context. So that's the plan for today. So we'll just walk through, mostly we'll spend most of our time in uh, verses 3 to 9, but we'll uh, talk about uh, the latter verses here as well towards the end, the idea of being a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom will come a little bit later, but mostly this exchange between the Pharisees and Jesus and what we learn here about their misunderstanding of uh, the Old Testament, their hard hearts, and how Jesus is a marriage restorer. He's the par excellence, the marriage restorer, and uh, we'll talk about what that means too. So, all right, how the Pharisees are testing Jesus. How are they doing that? They're, they're testing him, as it says here in the first couple of verses, by asking if it's lawful to divorce, and this is the key phrase, for any one cause. They ask him, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce, for a man to divorce his wife in particular? Um, and I should say this from the beginning too, it obviously applies both ways to husbands and wives, but in the first century context, only a husband could divorce a wife. A wife couldn't do that. She could instigate it and encourage it, but it couldn't actually legally be done. So this is why it's, why it's spoken only to, uh, to men. But obviously it goes uh, both ways here in today's, today's culture. It can be applied that way. But anyway, the test is that, though. Any one cause, any cause, is, is, it, is it lawful? The Pharisees here are alluding to an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament, 24.1, chapter 24, verse 1 which says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if, she, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And it goes on to talk about, um, that, you know, this is, this is happening. So if there's cause for this, indecency, we'll talk about that term in a second. 
But the whole point of this law, and you can keep reading, if you're interested in that, I encourage you to keep reading the rest of that uh, segment. I don't think it's the whole chapter, but that segment in Deuteronomy 24, which talks about the whole point really is to protect these women who were divorced uh, from exploitation. In other words, what could have happened is, uh, what, what did happen actually outside of this law, but let's just, for argument's sake, oppose, suppose that it wasn't in place, is that people would divorce, or could divorce their wife, a man could, and uh, the wife, prior to that, getting a dowry from her family, so a financial gift to, to bless the couple with, that dowry would stay with the husband uh, in this context, uh, not the wife, because the wife would have been charged with some kind of indecency, and it would stay, whatever monetary gift was given would stay with the husband. So then the, then the wife would go and get remarried, get another dowry, another gift from her parents for the second marriage. If that marriage dissolved, let's just say by death, what the certificate prevented was the first husband remarrying the wife again that he divorced for the sake of monetary gain, getting that second dowry and absorbing more financial benefit just in, into his life. So it's kind of confusing, a lot of layers to that, but the point is exploitation would occur. And so the certificate did not allow for remarriage of that first husband uh, that divorced in the first place for the sake of protecting exploitation. So that was really the whole point of, of the law. But really what the Pharisees are doing here in testing Jesus is bringing up this issue of, aside from all of that, this issue of indecency. They're focused more on this first verse that we read that it does say this can be done, they would say. It does allow for seeing no favor or indecency and divorcing. And so what constituted no favor or indecency was, was debated, I think I mentioned that before, among different Jewish theological schools. How broad could that term be defined? A little bit gray here, and so people differed. What does it mean? And some actually took an extreme position. People taught in the first century uh, that this is not in the Bible, but uh, some extra biblical outside the Bible uh, sources, Jewish sources indicate, we still have these today, indicated that even for things like a wife burning dinner or just not being attractive to the husband anymore, those were grounds enough, indecency type things, grounds enough for uh, many of the Jews in the first century. So part of the context to what, into which uh, Jesus speaks. So they're trying to trap Jesus by asking this question about, can for any cause a man divorce his wife? Knowing that there are schools that believe that about burning dinner and not being attractive anymore, and there are others that weren't quietly that broadly defined or abusive in their term of, or in their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Just knowing that whatever answer Jesus gives here, it's going to make a ton of people angry. And maybe that will be something to incriminate him with and ultimately destroy him with. Or you could just say broadly, it's almost unanswerable from the Bible because it just says indecency and no favor here. Uh, if you're just looking at this one, not the forest, but this one tree of the word of indecency and too honed in on that detail, uh, it is very hard to be definitive on. So this is, this, this is the context then into which Jesus speaks. And the context for how he responds is this culture of abuse of the Deuteronomy 24.1 principle. Deuteronomy 24 is a concession, by the way, not a command. You see in Deuteronomy 24.1 that the, the whole point here, God is not commanding divorce to happen. But the way that the Pharisees talk about it with Jesus, it's almost like they think that, as if that God is, is wanting, or, or not just allowing, but commanding, these were command, commanding that divorce happen. Whereas it's not. This is a concession, a consolation for very, very hard-hearted, sinful, relationally inept people like us that, that just can't get along. No, it's, just, it's consolation uh, for Israel for, for a time. So the fact then that the focus for many of the Jews in the first century was, how easily can I divorce my wife? How, how broad can I define that term to find a loophole to get out of unhappiness and issues in my marriage? That that was the issue rather than, in this extreme case, I sadly have to divorce my wife or my wife wants to divorce me, but I sadly, regrettably have to do this. Those are very different things. But the fact that it's this over here, how easily can I divorce my wife? That's the interpretive approach to Deuteronomy 24. The fact that that's the case tells us a lot about the hearts of the people that Jesus speaks to. All right, so let's move on. So that, that's the, the testing of Christ issue, the, the foundation there. How does Jesus respond? This is so good. He basically says, have you guys read Genesis before? Which is, you know, for people who have pretty much memorized Genesis, just a slight jab, not being condescending, but he is trying to make a point that you should know this. Going back to the very, very first part of the Bible, 
uh, the creation account, when God made people and there was a wedding at the very beginning. Don't you remember what happened there? So he actually quotes or alludes to at least Genesis 127, first chapter of the whole Bible, after God makes everything and makes people as well. It says about people especially. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And the chapter ahead in Genesis 2.24, Therefore, this is what Jesus quotes in Matthew 19, A man shall leave his family and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Extremely noteworthy here that wife, the word wife in reference to Eve, this is Adam and Eve here, uh, wife in reference to Eve uh, comes up. It's mentioned here in the second chapter of the Bible. God makes two people and officiates their wedding. The first two people. The first two people existed. They didn't live single lives for an extremely long time and God made several more people and then a few got together for marriage. The first two people ever made were married and God officiated essentially that wedding. Super crucial to see this. Before sin enters the world, before rebellion, darkness, and fallenness enter the world, that comes later. One of the first things that ever happens in history is a wedding. Isn't that awesome? I mean, right there alone, we should put our finger on that and say, God has something very important to say to us in some incredible plan for marriage that he's intending. And if you're just reading the Bible cover to cover and you don't know the end of the story, then at this point there'd be a question mark as to what that is. But you at least have to see that God has some major plan for marriage and communicating something to us through the institution of it, between, uh, in this case, the, the marriage between Adam and Eve, a husband and a wife. Okay, but at this point, Jesus is just noting, going back to Genesis 1 and 2, in response to the Pharisees' question, God's intention for one man and one woman to be married for life. A Chrysostom says, well, this is one of the early church fathers uh, in reference to this issue, but again, with the backdrop of Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve, two people being made, they get married. He says this, If it had been God's will that Adam should put this one Eve away, divorce her, and bring in another, when God had made the one man, he would have formed many women. Let's love that flow of logic. It's true. And so we should notice here that the, the fact that there's monogamy, but just sheer absence of divorce uh, before sin comes into the world. There's, there's just, you don't have to say that there's no divorce. There just isn't. We just see it in the white space. There's perfect marriage, one marriage before God, and there's the absence of divorce. Jesus is alluding to this, and especially in this statement, we see it come out a little bit more explicit in Matthew 19, when God says, what God has joined, let no one separate. So what God joins together, let no one separate. In response to, why does Moses command a certificate of divorce? Or is it lawful to divorce? Jesus goes back to the beginning and says, what God has joined, let, let no man separate. So effectively saying, uh, no, not lawful. But then they ask, as you might expect, why then does Moses, so when he's saying Moses here, uh, Moses was a prophet, a judge figure, uh, a, a deliverer figure in the Old Testament who wrote the first five books of the Bible after they happened, inspired by God. So when, when he talks about Moses, Moses is the author, but ultimately God is, of Deuteronomy 24. Why then does Moses command certificates of divorce to be given to wives? Back in Deuteronomy 24. Jesus' response here is beautiful and succinct and, and uh, convicting, very helpful. He just says, because of your hardness of heart. In other words, because of sin. And so again, he's retelling biblical history here by saying this. In the beginning, it was not so. There's movement in the story from the perfect to the marred to the restored. The perfect in the beginning to the marred by sin and rebellion against God, and all of us have engaged in that, to the restored through Christ, which we'll get to some of that third camp here in just a minute. But we still we see the movement before, between the first two here. From creation... I have a chart here to help with this as well. From creation, you see male and female married. There's no sin anywhere, and there's no divorce. But post-sin, or post after Adam and Eve and all of us with them rebelled against God, in other words, now there's hardness of heart, Jesus' words here in Matthew 19, sexual immorality, Jesus' words in Matthew 19, adultery, again, selfishness, and ultimately, divorce. And because of this right column, because of all of that, a law was given to give out certificates of divorce to women to protect them from exploitation. In other words, the divorce certificate law here in the Old Testament was not this magic liberating command for unhappy marrieds 
that made flippant, hasty divorce okay in God's eyes. And this is the spirit, of some, some of which uh, the, the Pharisees are suggesting with the way they're asking the question, and we just know about the culture. Flippant, hasty, God kind of, almost kind of wants this to happen perspective on divorce versus, this is just a concession for hard-hearted people. But according to Genesis 1 and 2, not lawful, not good. It says elsewhere in Malachi, forget the reference, but book of Malachi in the Old Testament, God actually hates divorce. Not just because he's choosing random things to hate, but because it communicates something about him that's untrue. And I'll come up a little bit a little bit later. And also because he loves us and it always tears at us. If we're one flesh with someone when we're married, if a husband and wife come together and they become one flesh before God and they're torn apart later, that's a painful process. It's like the tearing of skin. If you think about divorce, think about the tearing of skin. That's what it's like. Because you're, you're, you're tearing apart one flesh back into two pieces. And that's partly why it's painful. So God loves us, but also of the communicative elements of what it says about him, which we'll come to in a minute. So again, just to make sure this is clear, huge difference between seeing that this is a command at the heart of God versus a consolation or a concession. And I think this is why Jesus' answer in going back to Genesis 1 and 2 is so genius. Because he's not, he doesn't take the bait of trying to define the word indecency. He doesn't quite take that bait from from the Pharisees. Rather, he backs up and gives the big picture and says, he talks about Genesis way back in the beginning. And basically, he says, the Bible's a story here, guys. You're picking out one word of one verse, abusing it, and making a law out of it. But this is part of a storyline, not, not a random list of precepts that we can just open, kind of close our eyes, open our, open our, close our eyes, open our Bibles to, and point to and say, this is, this is law. There are, this is a great example of this. There are laws and things in the Bible that are lesser than other things that are greater. The Bible says this, that there, there are greater things and lesser things in the Bible. All are God's word, but some things help tell a story. They're, they're in elements in the earlier parts of the story that aren't meant to be eternal commands. They're meant to express fallenness. They're meant to give us a hint of Jesus ahead of time, but give way to the reality of Christ later. The Sabbath was a great example of this, if you guys were here for this. When Jesus says, I am the Sabbath, effectively, I'm replacing it, I am the rest giver. It's no longer a law anymore. Christians in the New Testament are not commanded to keep the Sabbath. You actually see Paul in one church context, people were abusing that and saying to be a Christian, you have to keep a Sabbath day, a day of rest. And Paul says, no, it's wrong to do it. Jesus is your Sabbath. And so that's, that's an element of how the Sabbath command in the beginning was good, but it was just a shadow, not a final reality. And, and so it's a great example of how Jesus backs up, gets the full biblical picture storyline, goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, acknowledges how it was in the beginning when Deuteronomy 24 is written, there's sin in the world and how it's more of that, more of that concession. So it's a genius answer because he, he's probably still ticking them off, but he doesn't take the bait at the same time. You know, he can't, not really say anything incriminating because he's using, his, using their scriptures to back up and give them an answer they're probably not used to hearing. All right, and that big picture idea is, is huge. And I think what's additionally interesting here, uh, it's subtle, in Matthew 19, much more clear in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, which we read months and months ago, actually probably over a year ago now, so I'll reread it here in a minute. But what's additionally interesting here in how Jesus handles that storyline then is that he doesn't just see the Deuteronomy 24 thing as a concession, but he also sees himself as a restorer in the way he talks. So what God called really good in the beginning, people being made and marriage happening and all that stuff that existed before sin entered the world, Jesus, the way he talks, is implying that he's going to be the restorer of that way in a very authoritative manner. So the verse I was referring to here is Matthew 5, 31 to 32. So let me just read this, just two verses. Same issue, said more concisely, but note what he says here about how he compares himself to what Moses says in the Old Testament. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except in the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is saying here then, again, if you back up and get the big idea, especially with the but I say to you in mine, he said, in my kingdom, divorce will happen less. In my kingdom, marriage will be held up in even higher regard. In my kingdom will be held up so high, it'll be in line with pre-fall ideals that God intended uh, back 
in Genesis 1 and 2, and it will all be associated with me. Or, God had an intent for marriage in the beginning, but sin entered the world and it was marred. Now I say to you, it needs to be this way again. It needs to be back. It needs to be restored and held up higher and more valued. And I say that to you now. Implied, I'm the one who's going to restore it. When Jesus says, but I say to you, he's speaking like God. He's speaking in a way that has the same kind of authority as one who would write the Bible, which only God has. He does it through people, but he speaks in that very authoritative manner and implies that he is the marriage restorer. Perfect marriage to divorce, a culture of divorce. And the third camp is we get to in the New Testament is Christ who will restore all things. So this movement then, again, we see, I think the movement here is, idea is very important to get. This idea from going from the lesser to the greater, old to New Testament, Moses to Jesus, imperfect to perfect, really important to pick up on. And when we do that, the question then becomes, it's a spin on the same question that I think Jesus is getting in one sense. It's, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. It's kind of related, but uh, I think another spin on it in that, how did Deuteronomy 24 give way to something better? Or, How did the sin of divorce give way to something restorative? How did the the, the concession idea, the imperfect idea of Deuteronomy 24, give way to someone or something restorative? And to address that question, we have to widen out like Jesus is doing and talking about the big picture, the forest, and talk a bit more topically about marriage and divorce. So we'll spend a few minutes doing that because Matthew 19 is a piece of the puzzle, but biblically speaking, it's it's not the whole thing. So when we back out, and get a broader, more 30,000-foot view rather than, um, you know, just right above the ground view. When we do that, we see that the Bible makes an incredibly radical claim about how Christ relates to marriage. Genesis 1 and 2 are a hint of it. The New Testament makes this very, very, very clear. Uh, and and this, is, this is what it says. And I, this is wherever you guys are. Some of you guys aren't even Christians yet. So wherever you guys are spiritually, some of this will be a brand new thing, very radical. Some of you this will be... Uh, not new, but a good reminder. But this, this is the most radical thing you will ever hear about marriage in your life. This is what the Bible says. Marriage is not about you. Marriage is not about you and your spouse. Marriage is not about you and your future spouse. Marriage is not about me and my marriage to Aletha. In one sense, you can say it is. God, God wants to gift us good things and benefit us. But in a much higher sense, according to the Bible... Marriage is ultimately not in existence for us as a gift. It's ultimately in existence for Jesus Christ and specifically what we see when he's crucified. That is the most radical thing we can hear about marriage because it's a game changer. If we believe that, it changes our perspective on all kinds of things, on issues of gender, issues of divorce and remarriage, issues of happiness in marriage, issues of how flippantly we should pursue divorce or how deliberately we should pursue divorce. Even just marital health issues of marriage not being about me and my needs. I mean, talk about something that's just so simple, but something you will never, ever, ever hear from the world. <laughs> I can't think of a place. You hear, that, you hear that theology, which it really is theology, is that marriage is about you and you getting something out of marriage. The Bible says this the other way around. It's, you, you get fulfillment, but marriage is not really it's about you. It's about your spouse, but even more than that, it's about God demonstrating something to us through the institution of marriage that tells us about him. So really what it is, is, I don't think I mentioned this before. If I did, I'll just repeat myself because um, it's important, uh, is that you know, the marriage, marriage is a piece to the beginning of the story in Genesis 1 and 2, but the Bible also ends with it as well. There's another marriage in the Bible that supersedes the first one. In one sense, you could say the Bible is a story or a tale of two marriages. The first one being between Adam and Eve, and in one sense, all physical marriage is flowing from that, but the second marriage is a much greater one. It's according to the Bible, it's a marriage between God and people. God is the bridegroom. He's the ultimate spiritual husband. And the Bible says we are the bride. All over the place it teaches. In fact, it's one of the, one of the most common metaphors given over to salvation in the Bible. It's wonderfully intimate and, and beautiful. And if we really feel the weight of that and get that, especially if we have experience in a healthy marriage or watching a healthy marriage in our parents or something, it's incredibly informative on in how much God loves us and saves us by grace and defines his relationship with us based on his love, not on what we do for him. I mean, what good marriages do you know that operate on that level? What healthy good marriages do you know that operate on a, if you do this for me, then I'll love you? Good luck, right? It's not how God operates. God is a loving, faithful, spiritual husband who has 
demonstrated his love, not just said he's loving, but demonstrated it by dying on a cross for our sins. And in that way, wedded us to himself. Ephesians 5, 25 and 32, two verses in this greater context here, I'll read on this. But it gives you an idea of how really tirelessly the New Testament correlates marriage to something bigger than us, something that pertains more to God than to us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And in verse 32, this is key. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So acknowledging the mystery of this, that there's a spiritual dimension, it's hard to really pin down, but he's saying every marriage, especially you could say healthy marriage, refers to Christ in the church. It points to it. It's referential to it. Point, it's objective. It's, it's, it points outside of itself to something greater than it that it's almost a shadow of. It's, it's a greater reality. It's casting a shadow of it into the world, you could say. And that is Christ's love for the church. He actually uses sacrificial language here in that first sentence and gave himself up for us, referring to the cross. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved you. How did he love you? By giving himself up for you and dying on a cross for your sins that you might not have to face the same fate. And rising up again on the third day, defeating overwhelming death on our behalf. But this is the mystery of marriage. It's referring to something outside of us. Not about us, it's about God. Elsewhere in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is called the second Adam. So there's two Adams of the Bible. The Adam of the Genesis 2, which we read about earlier in Genesis 1. And there's the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who's, a, who's a new, associated with the new creation, He's a new groom, and he's associated with a new bride as well, a new Eve. And that new Eve is the church. And he's also associated with a new marriage, which is salvation. When we're saved from our sins, it's as if we're married to God. We're wedded to him. He woos us to himself and loves us in that great act of history. When we believe in it, cast ourselves upon it and cling to it for a dear life. One of the things the Bible says is, you are in that way loved as a good husband to a wife and you're brought to him, and he, lo- he will love you forever because he's eternally faithful. Not faithful for a little bit of time, then he cheats on you. He's eternally faithful. We will cheat on God, we will go the other way, but he is eternally faithful to redeem us and to restore us and to purify us and to love, love, love us until the end of days and then into eternity. Praise God. So, I'm not exaggerating here when I say that this issue of seeing marriage is not about us, but about Jesus and the church, uh, is the issue that differentiates biblical Christianity and its perspective on the matters from everything else. From others, for example, who devalue marriage or redefine gender or get divorced very flippantly for convenience sake. The question is, is marriage about us or is it about God? Is it a demonstration of Jesus' love for the church Or is it just a social convenience, tax break, a man-made institution? Or is it about me as well in that camp? See, our perspective on these matters are, again, worlds and worlds and worlds apart. One's very cultural. It's a voice of the world. It's it's a suggestion in in a theology, you could say, of the world, because a philosophy. And the other is the voice of God. It's the voice of Christ. It's, It's the voice saying, it's not about you. It's about me. And everything exists ultimately for me. Everything is here to point to me. And I want you to learn something about me through the institution of of marriage, like everything else in the world. Some of you may have heard about uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's statement post-divorce. Did you hear about this? Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow uh, just got divorced from her now ex-husband, Chris Martin, uh, in which she used the phrase uh, conscious uncoupling to refer to divorce. Anybody hear this? few of you? Okay, you're in a few yeses. Conscious uncoupling. Just to soften the idea of divorce a bit, we've, we're consciously, consciously uncoupling. We're not really, I mean, we're divorcing, but we're consciously uncoupling. And spoke quite highly about the state of their separated relationship. She, I mean, she'd say now, I think has on record said that they're better friends, things are, are great now, and people have praised them for it, using words like, so courageous uh, to do this, uh, courageous, and, um, but I think that's a good example of, uh, you know, obviously this is from a secular perspective, so I'm assuming Gwyneth is not a Christian, as far as I know she's not, you guys probably know better than I do, but a secular perspective, and then all of this being written to a Christian perspective, so mostly to Christians and to people who are interested in what the Bible has to say about these matters as well, but so there's a little bit slight difference here, but 
Still, the freedom by which culture, and you can see the same thing going on in the first century with spiritual Pharisees who are supposed to be biblicists. They're supposed to teach the Bible. They're missing, they're abusing the principle out of hard hearts. Uh, So it comes at it from both spiritual and secular angles. But regardless, the the freedom by which culture says we we can be unfaithful to our spouses. We don't have to finish the race. It doesn't have to be death do us part. The freedom by which culture says we can divorce when convenient and marry others as much as we want. I think that those are, in light of all that we just talked about, Ephesians 5 and, and the deeper core issue of what marriage is all about, I think all those issues are surfacey issues. I think that they're symptoms of the greater issue. If you peel back the top layer of those things, what you have beneath the covers there, effectively, is the issue of godlessness. And not seeing marriage, not seeing all of life as about God, but rather seeing it as about us. That's the core issue. Because if you believe that, we're going to operate more based on feelings and convenience and what we're getting or not getting out of this rather than deep commitment and sacrifice that's first given us on the cross by Jesus Christ. That's not going to define our actions as, I mean, if we're not Christians, for sure not, right? But as Christians who are missing the point here, we're going to be more over here until we remember this, that marriage is not about me. It's not about me and my needs. It's not about me and my, what I get. It's what I can give to my spouse, and it's how I can reflect and image the God of creation because he's the ultimate husband, and we are the church, the ultimate bride. So huge, again, world's, world's difference uh, there in perspective that will greatly affect how flippantly we divorce, and a lot of times if we ever divorce or not, and just what kind of meaning, period, we'll get out of marriage in life, whether we're married or not. Singles can still get this because they watch marriages around them all the time. All right, now with this idea in place, this is, this is in and of itself a bit of a foundation to build a few more affirmations off of that go outside of um, of Matthew 19 a little bit here. And I want to just address to what I assume is going to be all of you to some degree uh, in different camps here and make a few more affirmations about theological ones about marriage and divorce according to the rest of the scriptures that we, can, we need to hear and apply. And so the, the first is this. I've been talking about this, but I'll flip the coin around here in a second. The first is this. Marriage resembles Christ's love for the church, Period. That's what it's about. But there's a flip side of that coin. If that's the case, if marriage does refer to a good marriage, healthy marriage, Christ's love for the church, when a husband's loving for and dying dying for his wife, then the flip side of that coin is divorce, in, in one sense all divorce, but especially flippant divorce, resembles or refers to a God who is unfaithful to us. Especially when a man divorces his wife, but because they're more that Christ figure, as the Bible teaches uh, in the marriage context, Ephesians 5 was big on that, but it goes both ways. Could be a wife divorcing a husband as well. It images a God who's unfaithful, who's unwilling to go the distance for us in love. So divorce is hurtful, just on one basic level, it's hurtful in general. And those of you guys who've experienced divorce uh, firsthand, if you are a divorcee or if your parents have been divorced and it's greatly affected you, uh, you probably don't have to hear a long, prolonged teaching on marriage or divorce is not really a good thing because it's hurt you. You don't have to be convinced of that. You know, contrary to Gwyneth Paltrow's passing, conscious, uncoupling statements that hey, this is great, we're better friends now. Contrary to that, divorce is always painful, always painful thing. It's a tearing of flesh, like I said before, and also like I said before, it's why, partly why God hates it, according to the Bible. But again, on another deeper level, Divorce is painful because it resembles an unfaithful God. I mean, if divorce has ever hurt you guys, and a lot of you have been hurt by it firsthand or secondhand, divorce has hurt you, uh, this is one of the reasons why, right here. Because it, it rips, divorce rips at the fabric of the gospel reality that holds all things together. And the devil will whisper things to us through divorce, like, maybe God's like that. Maybe God won't be as faithful. God calls himself a husband in the Bible. And this is your experience to a wife who had an abusive husband. Maybe God's a little bit like that. It may not be quite, that's the voice of the devil, clear things, you know, in your mind, but it'll be those subtle whisper in a dream, suggestive, over the long run theologies that you will hear through your experience if you're not grounded in the scriptures. And it'll tear at that. That's one of the reasons why 
uh, divorce is uh, so incredibly painful. And sometimes I've had people tell me, as I've taught this before, people tell me that's really relieving to hear uh, because uh, they didn't really know why it was so painful. They couldn't process that deeper spiritual reality for a while, until they heard that, that God is not like that. And so it moves me into my second thing, which is divorce happens uh, still. We still live in a fallen world. Divorces still happen, sometimes necessarily still have to happen. It's imperfect. We live in that world. And if that's you, just a word to the divorcees for a second. You need to hear today that this is not, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Contrary to what you may have heard or subtly suggested uh, by the church in the past, divorce is not unforgivable. You're not a second-class Christian because you've been uh, divorced. Likely, sin surrounded, surrounded somehow the divorce uh, on your side and maybe your ex-spouse's side uh, as well. Probably, almost always goes both ways to some degree. Uh, but it's still not the unforgivable sin. God loves you deeply, and he wants you to know that he is not like, a, he's not a divorcing God. God will never consciously uncouple you, ever. Glory to God. <laughs> he never will do that. He's eternally faithful. He's eternally loving. He's eternally generous. So bring your baggage and your pain and your shame and your sin and your past experiences of divorce or just sin in general, and he will forgive you and give you peace. He will not treat you as a third-ring kind of friend that I used to know and still email and, uh, you know, we used to be married, but, you know, life's better. Life's better now when we're not married. Just, you know, woo! Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be uh, just silly? Uh, but, okay. But his love is everlasting. So the third thing is, if your marriage is in trouble... Uh, if that's you today, uh, and every marriage does have trouble, so if it's not, it will be or it was. If your marriage is in trouble, uh, I encourage you to take divorce off the table completely. Don't make it an option, because once you make it an option, this is one of the issues, the prenuptial agreements, it becomes this thing. And, and, and at the first start of conflict or a fight or a disagreement or, oh my gosh, you're like that, whatever it is, after the honeymoon or something, there, there's this option on the table to, I could easily get out of this. We sign this agreement. Take it off the table. Especially if, if you're a Christian, at the center of your reality is that God doesn't divorce. You have more rationale, more power, more spiritual truth to latch onto to make this a reality. Now, the Bible uh, does give exceptions to, to the general rule of no divorce, uh, but they are exceptions, not rules. Uh, the Bible does talk about here in Matthew 19 about fornication or adultery. Um, being grounds for divorce or other places. The New Testament talks about the flight of a non-Christian spouse who, after attempts to reconcile and to stay in the marriage, just runs, can't handle the, the, the spiritual incompatibility and runs. Uh, it's from 1 Corinthians 7. And also common sense would indicate that an abusive husband who's unrepentant uh, would necessitate divorce for the wife's safety uh, as well. But again, we have to guard ourselves against the sin of hasty divorce here. Uh, divorces should always be carefully weighed with broken hearts. And, and even if they are necessary, after much counsel and much attempt at reconciliation has happened, um, that they should be prayed over, sought counsel over, and just pursued with, uh, with those broken hearts. But again, uh, taken off the table. Some of you have it on the table and it just shouldn't even be there because your issues aren't that big. And, and you don't should not be, if it's a consideration, it'll be too much of a temptation. You know, just take it off. You're meant to be married for life, and God intends that. And mo most issues, I'll just say most, most issues can, to the glory of God, be resolved. And, and I'll say this too, um, the, the presence of a, a healthy marriage is not the absence of conflict. It's, it's the presence of good conflict resolution. If you think that your marriage is great because you never fight, there's probably something serious going on in your marriage. So the presence, of, the presence of good conflict resolution technique and practice in a marriage, that's a sign of a good marriage amongst the mess, uh, not a completely messless, uh, is that a word? Well, messless, you know, uh, thing, marriage. Uh, so have that in mind as well. Work hard, pray, get counsel, um, ask God and, and others for help, and work on your marriage. Don't be hasty and flippant like, the hard-hearted people, men especially, were in the first century that Jesus approaches and talks to. All right, if you're single, uh, a lot of you are single, and some of you, maybe most of you, uh, will be married someday, but you're single for now. Uh, you need to hear uh, that marriage is, according to the Bible, 
because of what it says about the purpose of marriage, what it images. Marriage is not your ultimate destiny in life. Marriage in one sense is your marriage to Christ. You are part of the church if you're a Christian. Uh, you're his bride. That's your, and you can connect with and relate to marriage on the highest level in your singleness without missing out on really any, any, any of it, really, because true, I mean, marriage, interpersonal marriage, is just a shadow, not the reality. Verse 12, I'll mention a couple things here. I didn't spend a lot of time on this today, but verse 12 in today's passage talks about eunuchs. Eunuchs are castrated men. And Jesus says here, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs, this is the important third part here. There are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive. It's all in response to the disciples saying, if this is all true, isn't it better not to marry? It's, it's complex. It's hard. It is hard. It's really great, but it's really hard. And Jesus says, some people will be spiritual eunuchs. In other words, they'll be celibate. They won't be married for a good degree of their life, maybe indefinitely, for the sake of having more margin and free time to pour into advancing the gospel to to dead sinners around them and pour into their church and be a herald of good news. We'll have more more time and margin to do that. 1 Corinthians 7, big argument on this as well. We don't have time for it today, but one verse again that caters to this idea is, are you bound to a wife or a husband? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife or a husband? Uh, do not seek it. So, in other words, be content. That's the whole point of this section and one of the main points of 1 Corinthians 7 and elsewhere in the New Testament. Be content. God will call some of you out of singleness at some point, but until then, the call here, this is actually a call for marrieds too. If you're married, don't seek to be single. Don't get divorced. If you're single, don't seek to be married. And you will in time, probably. Uh, God will provide that. Receive it as a gift in the moment, but God will get tons of glory if you're content in your singleness uh, and, and aren't, you know, actively, it's fine to look for a spouse, but don't worship that idea. Don't replace Jesus with, I've got to be married uh, or I'm going to be incredibly depressed, you know, if I'm not. Then, then we know it's something we're worshiping because you know you're worshiping something when it's taken away from you and you get extremely angry and ang- anxious and depressed. Then it's an idol. Five and final, uh, for all of us, wherever you guys are, Single, married, with kids, without kids, divorcees, non-divorcees, hurt by divorce, not hurt by divorce, whatever. For all, Christian or not, for all of you, hold marriage in high regard. Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor or high regard among all in the church. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous couple final things here. Uh, First, to state the obvious, the Pharisees who are testing Jesus in Matthew 19 were not holding marriage in high regard. They They were abusing the Bible, the Old Testament, and looking for loopholes to hastily divorce people and remarry people that they thought were more attractive and could cook better. Sin. I mean, this, this, is, this, is, this is not holding marriage in high regard. Good example of that. There are many other things you could say too, but they're, they're not holding marriage in high regard. Holding marriage in high regard, I think, looks like two things. Holding marriages, actual marriages that we experience or see, working on them, praying for them, praying against divorce, but then also holding in hand and holding up in honor the thing that marriage is all about, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So churches and people that honor marriage hold up the fact and herald and proclaim and build into others and other people's lives the fact that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who's been slain for the sins of the world, is our spiritual husband and he's wedded to us. And we're clean. We're, 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 we're clothed, the Bible says in Revelation 19, as the bride of Christ with white linens, white wedding linen garments that he has granted us to wear. He's given us that. He's, he's cleansed us. And so holding up marriage is both. We've got to especially hold up the gospel but then also work on marriages. But hold up the fact that God is always faithful to you. He is. And, you know, men, the Bible calls us to especially be Christ figures in the marriage context. Husbands, I should say. But men, those of you who are single who will be married someday to image this, but we will fall, always fall short of being perfect of the true husband. Point your wife to this God and women, pursue him. Wives, singles, married, pursue the God of the Bible who is always faithful who is never passive, who, is ne- who will never lie, will never cheat you, he will never harm you, he will always and forever love you, he will always protect you, he will always provide for you, he will always lead you into the fold of salvation 
the, the spiritual promised land which we're all prodding ahead to in the desert of this age. That's what God is like. That's the ultimate goal of marriage that you all need to hear. I need to hear afresh today, some of you for the first time. And that's what marriage in their, in their good days can image. Uh, especially husbands, the impetus is on you. It just is biblically. That there's less to wives to enable, to make sure this is happening in the marriage context. There's a lot more ink given over to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Die for her. Put her first. Uh, love her. Lead her. Provide for her. Not, don't be passive with her because God is not with you. Don't lie to her because God speaks the truth to you. Don't cheat on her because God never cheats with you. Don't harm her, but be gentle with her and love her. And we, we can image this, husbands. Um, and as a culture, all of us can hold this up and value it. But we can never replace it with the reality that casts the shadow of it. And that is Christ and him crucified. So hold up that gospel, then work hard on your marriages in community here, whatever church you're a part of. Pray for marriages, pray against that divorce, and for lifelong faithfulness between a husband and a wife that can give us that whisper of the perfect marriage that we have in part now, but praise be to God, fully in the future, it's coming. So let's pray. God, thank you uh, for today, the gospel of grace uh, in Matthew 19, in Genesis 1 and 2, in Ephesians 5, in 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5. Uh, all those passages we alluded to, God, that tell us that marriage is not about us, it's about you. Uh, God, forgive us our sin. Uh, forgive us brokenness. Forgive us selfishness. Forgive us adultery. Forgive us and wipe us clean. Forgive us divorces, especially ones that were hasty and flippant. God, help us just to come to you afresh today with all of our baggage and to lay it down before you and to, and to ask for forgiveness. We need it uh, wherever we are today with the whole thing of marriage and, and divorce. Uh, but thank you, God, that divorce is not a picture of you. Good marriage is. You'll always be that ultimate, ultimate, ultimate form of perfect husband-loving-a-wife uh, type sacrificial love. So, God, pray for uh, the rest of our time. Uh, blessed as we worship and take communion in remembrance of the thing that really enacted the ultimate wedding of history. Uh, got the gears moving anyway, uh, the death and resurrection, death especially, uh, of your son Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.